Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. Scared to death is explicit in every way. Please take care while listening. Whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no home, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps, Peepers, Roberts, and Annabelles. I'm Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm Lindsay. And we have way less announcements this week. We're going to go so fast through them, and there's l- much less. And you know what's going to make everything so fast? What? Is that I had coffee today, and oh, I'm going to go boy. so fast. No, okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, recording in advance, we have no idea how summer camp tickets are selling. Uh, I do know by the time you hear this, you can go to badmagicmerch.com, check the banner at the top of the store, see for yourself uh, if you want to buy tickets. Yes. Merch reminder, we have a bunch of badass Valentine's Day cards, as I said before, over at badmagicmerch.com. Each set contains 18 foldable Valentine's cards featuring six unique illustrations. Each set also comes with a sticker sheet so you can close your Valentine just like we did in grade school. Artwork also available as framed 5 by 7 mini canvases. Freaking adorable. So adorable and you can head to badmagicmerch.com as well for that. And then Lindsay, you have a charity reminder. Bada bing, bada boom, bada bang. With all the camp announcements, I forgot to tell you guys about our charity. I think I only mentioned it once this month. So... This month's charity of choice is the Museum of Tolerance, and we are donating a whopping $14,533 to the Museum of Tolerance, and $1,614 is being transferred into the forthcoming scholarship fund. We'll be talking about that next month. Mm -hmm. The Museum of Tolerance, as a reminder, is the only museum of its kind in the entire world. It's dedicated to challenging visitors to understand the Holocaust in both historic and contemporary contexts and confronts all forms of prejudice and discrimination in our world today. And for more information, you can visit museumoftolerance.com. Well done. Boom. And now horror. Yes. So what do you have for us today? Okay. Well, mm-hmm. like last week, yeah. I have something new for you to be scared of. Oh, really? I know. I'm so proud of myself. Mostly I'm proud of our fans. <laughs> yeah, for, for sending these your way. <laughs> for sending them in and then just, you know, for our team that classifies them and helps yeah. me dig out the best of the best. It is the legend of the Kunduz. Do you know anything about that? Kunduz? Kunduz. Nope. Okay. Well, hmm. you're going to learn about that in story one. Okay. And in story two, a haunted train ride. Oh, that's fun. It is fun. 
Man, I don't think we've had one of those yet. I will touch on that. Plane, I think, but not train. That's great. Do we have plane? I think. Trains, planes, and automobiles? <clears throat> yeah. I think we talked about a plane. Maybe hypothetically, but maybe didn't have a story actually set there. I don't know. Well, I can't remember I now. I feel like either we talked about it in great length about what it would be like, mm -hmm. but I do have some nagging recollection of like something on an airplane. Yeah. Now, now I'm just wondering too, if we just talked about it hypothetically or actually, because yeah. I don't have any story details in my head. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, well, I'm excited to hear the train story. I'm excited to tell you. I have two uh, collections of stories, really. My first story is based in some true crime. The 1969 unsolved murder of 18-year-old college student Emily Kessig in Cicero, Illinois. Okay. Has her ghost haunted the campus of Morton College ever since? And then my next story is set in the Santa Fe National Forest in New Mexico. What could explain a collection of sightings and strange disappearances around the three locations of the Holy Ghost Campground, El Camino del Diablo, and the Pecos Wilderness? Is there a portal to some other dimension or world in this area? Eager to share all of this with you and with our awesome creeps and peepers. I love that you said Holy Ghost, and I immediately reverted back to like my childhood mm -hmm, Catholic, Catholic days. Childhood. And went, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And my <laughs> grandma would be like, don't say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you want to share those uh, socks and then we'll get started? I do. I have a very special pair of socks today for my okay. own personal collection. <laughs> While they're not fuzzy, they're so cute. I love I love them. how you've become a sock model randomly on this show. <gasps> Should I have a sock only only fans? Oh boy, uh, there, there probably is uh, a demand for that. Listen, sure. look at these socks. I am obsessed with this like semi sheer kind of sock. If you live here in Coeur d'Alene, there's an adorable store downtown called Mana. It's across the street from Fine Brood. It's one of my favorite little gift shops, and I love these socks. Great, great. Thank you. <laughs> uh, okay, so quite a bit of true crime setup. Okay. Before I get into the paranormal aspects of this one. All right. Well, I'm gonna get cozy. In 1969, Emily Kessig was an 18-year-old freshman attending Morton College in Cicero, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. Newspaper articles describe her as quiet and a good student. Morton College is the second oldest community college in Illinois, founded in 1924 and originally held classes at Morton East High School. Construction for a proper campus didn't actually start until 1973, and the campus opened 20 months later. Back when Emily was a student, she would have gone to classes at that high school. And tragically, Emily was murdered during her freshman year. She was found dead on the afternoon of Saturday, October 18th, 1969. Her body was laying in a muddy lot, sometimes described as a field, near 38th Street and Central Avenue, now part of the campus. She was found naked and lying face down. Oh my God. And by the time her remains were discovered, she had been dead for 10 to 12 hours. Her cause of death was listed as strangulation, but that wasn't all that had been done to her. She had been savagely beaten about her head and face. Someone had actually left a hole in the base of her skull. Holy crap! Despite being found nude, the coroner ruled that she had not been sexually assaulted. Investigators had, and still have, no idea who killed her. But in the weeks and months following her death, it looked like her case was going to be solved at multiple points. The day after she was murdered, on Sunday, October 19th, uh, after her body was found, uh, a possibly important clue to what happened to her was discovered. A partially bloody palm print was found on a window at the Manor Savings and Loan Association in Cicero. Also, human hair, more blood, were found on the sidewalk near that palm print. The police theorized that the blood belonged to Emily, since her body had been found only six blocks away. And more importantly, her clothing was found just one block away. Most of it, anyway. Her coat, which she was reportedly wearing that night, would never be found. The police now had a primary suspect, Emily's boyfriend. He lived only two blocks away. 
The police now work to retrace Emily's steps on Friday the 17th and Saturday the 18th. Uh, they learned that Emily's dad dropped her off at Morton College on the morning of October 17th. Emily had spent the afternoon at school, gotten into an argument with her boyfriend, 16-year-old Joseph Napick, when he asked her for a ring that he'd given her a year earlier. The ring would later be found with Emily's possessions. He wanted it back. According to the police, Emily's friends admitted that there was supposed to be a party at the boyfriend's house after his parents left for a weekend trip, but it never ended up happening. Supposedly, the parents never went on that trip. At 6 p.m. on Friday, Emily met with a girlfriend who worked at a restaurant near 13th Street and Cicero Avenue. The two of them went to this friend's house and stayed there until 8 p.m. At this point, Emily called her parents, said she'd be home around midnight, but then made other plans. The girl stopped at a snack shop, went to a local pizzeria, stayed there until almost 1.30 in the morning, then left with two male friends. At this point, Emily asked to be driven by her boyfriend's house. According to her friends, when she thought she saw her boyfriend in a parked car in front of his house, she asked to get out and they dropped her off. Emily's boyfriend and his parents will say that they never saw her that night, that by that point, everyone had gone to bed. Next, a man informed the police that he offered Emily a ride at 2.15 a.m. The motorist saw Emily standing alone on the corner of 35th Street and Central Avenue, and she declined his offer. He said she was alone when he left her. He'll later be questioned and released by police. It is estimated that Emily was killed a few hours later, between 5 and 6 a.m. What was she still doing out, alone and out? A neighborhood woman reported hearing moaning coming from an alley near where Emily's body was found during the same 5 to 6 a.m. time slot. The woman's son also found a wig with a blood-stained dollar at the scene when he was coming home from his paper route. Was the wig what her killer wore to disguise himself? Two telephone repairmen found some of her bloody clothing and a student ID card in that alley. The search for Emily started before 8 a.m. on October 18th, and the police found her body that afternoon. The police believe that she might have tried to see her boyfriend, uh, but then started walking around alone when she didn't see him. They think that Emily might have been picked up when she was walking, perhaps by someone she knew or a stranger. A resident of her boyfriend's neighborhood reported seeing a girl who looked like Emily walking alone around 2 a.m. Emily's boyfriend was questioned, but was quickly released. He and his parents said they did not see Emily on Friday or Saturday. So who killed her? On October 22nd, four days after Emily was found dead, police arrested 26-year-old Frank Woik Jr., an auto mechanic from Chicago, and charged him with the murder of his mother and grandmother. And then Woik confessed to murdering Emily Kessig, but the police discounted his confession because he didn't know any of the details. Frank was mentally very unwell. So what about that bloody handprint? Did that lead to, lead to anything? No. The police eventually learned that the bloody handprint on the window had zero connection with Emily's murder. The blood was caused by someone who got sick while shopping and experienced some intense internal hemorrhaging. Oh my God. Yeah. A few weeks after Emily's death in November of 1969, the coroner's jury declared a finding of murder by person or persons unknown in Emily's case. A few months later, in January of 1970, Emily's father offered a $5,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest of the killer. But no information ever came. And unfortunately, her case remains unsolved. And now, since her case has been cold for over 52 years, it likely will never be solved. Does that mean her spirit will continue to haunt the grounds of the school she once attended? That's what some think. Since her death, there are those who believe she has never left Morton College. Time now for the tale of the ghost of Emily Kessig. The field where Emily's body was found is now part of Morton College campus. As mentioned previously, construction started on an actual campus in 1973. According to Richard Crow, a Chicago ghost researcher, 
Construction on the college was still yet to be finished when Emily's ghost was first seen. A man working on the roof of a building saw what he first thought was a student one evening, a teenage girl dressed in white, walking along the roof's edge. He called out to her, and then, to his horror, she took one step off the edge. He ran over, looked over, expecting to see a dead body below, but instead he saw nothing. His description of her would perfectly match a description of Emily. Over the years, there have been so many reports from people who have claimed to have encountered Emily's spirit on campus. In addition to being witnessed where she was killed, Emily also allegedly haunts the Morton College Theater, so consistently that she even has her own designated seat. <laughs> no one ever wants to sit there because the seat is allegedly frequently icy cold. Various online sources claim that Emily most consistently sits in her seat during particularly violent productions. Is she drawn to these performances because of what happened to her? Various custodial workers and security guards have reported sightings and terrifying encounters with the spirit of Emily on campus at night. Mostly when Emily witnessed, it is after the sun's gone down. Emily seems to like to mess with elevators, causing them to move up and down on their own. She also reportedly uh, throws stones and objects at people, other objects. Perhaps she's mistaken them for her killer. Her ghost has also been spotted on the roofs of various campus buildings, mostly the roof of Building E. She seems to haunt this building often. Faucets have supposedly been witnessed turning on and off by themselves, and toilets have been seen flushing on their own. Perhaps no group of people have had more encounters with Emily's ghost than campus police. Is she angry with law enforcement for failing to solve her murder case? The following is a story from campus patrol officer Frank Esposito. Shortly after being hired, Esposito heard some, quote, crazy stories about other officers' experiences with Emily. Like that she'd thrown rocks at them from the roof. And that one officer allegedly saw a girl he first thought was a living, breathing student. A girl who looked just like Emily, as he found out later walked straight through a brick wall. Esposito didn't believe these stories, but then his mind was changed on February 15th, 2004. It was a Saturday night. All was quiet on campus. Dispatch received a call from a teacher who said that she was ready to leave Building E. She thought she was the only person in the building, but just a bit before calling, it seemed like someone else was now in there with her, so she had requested an officer to come check things out. According to Esposito, they already had the college locked up and secured for the night. The alarms had been set, so the teacher was especially confused as to how someone could now be in the building with her. When Esposito was trying to get information from dispatch about the location of the teacher's office, he noticed that his radio was breaking up with a lot of static. So much, he couldn't continue to communicate with dispatch. Something felt off about this. He couldn't quite explain how the static felt off. It just did. It didn't sound quite like normal interference. And then minutes later, when Esposito was in Building E and walking through the hallways towards this teacher's office... He, quote, sensed something. He announced his presence when he heard some noises that suggested the presence of someone else nearby. But no one responded. He wondered if the noises were being made by the teacher or an intruder. So he braced himself for possible action. As he approached the area where he continued to hear objects clattering, he now also heard singing off in the distance. The way it sounded, he wondered if someone had left a radio on. He now decided to go find the radio, turn it off, and as he walked towards this sound, he started to get spooked. He later said, It was hard to explain the singing because it was muffled in a way. You couldn't tell if it was words or tones or a combination thereof, but it was not any song that I've ever known or heard. He became increasingly concerned the closer he got to the source of this music. He started to feel truly afraid. Still not thinking of paranormal possibilities, he suspected that some type of intruder was using music to lure him into some type of ambush. 
He attempted to contact dispatch again, but was met with more of that strange static. And then a clear musical voice started singing through his radio now. Come below where you came for. Take me down in the field below. The field? The field where Emily's remains were found? He didn't make this connection until later. As this odd voice continued to sing, he heard another sound off in the distance. Again, it sounded like someone else was moving around in the building with him. He called out again, and still no one answered. Where was his teacher? Esposito was really starting to get nervous at this point. Still, he did his job, and he followed the noise down another hallway. As he methodically made his way down the hall, he inspected each office and noticed that whenever he entered a room, any room, the singing stopped. But when he closed the door and re-entered the hallway, the singing started up again. What the hell was happening? He continued calling out, Campus Police! And moving through the hallway, his wariness increasing with each step, he knew that whatever was happening had no logical explanation, and now his mind wandered towards the paranormal. Now he wondered, was he hearing Emily? Esposito knew that in all likelihood, no one could have gotten inside without the alarm code. The building was secure, or at least was in theory. He knew with 99% certainty that no one was inside except him and the teacher. A teacher he curiously could not find. How could she not hear him calling out? Esposito entered another room and he watched a lamp turn on by itself, a lamp you turned on by pulling a chain. He saw the chain move and now the chain was swinging back and forth rapidly and he got the chills. He reached out to turn the lamp off and as soon as the room went dark, a woman's screams pierced the night air. The screams came from somewhere inside the building. Now he worried about the teacher's safety. He raced to the stairwell, followed the sound, entered one of the building's restrooms to make sure no one was hiding inside along the way. He opened the stall doors, one by one. Each stall was empty. But as he looked in the last stall, he heard the screams again. He entered the stairwell now, running towards the furnace room. As he ran, the eerie singing started up again, this time much louder and closer. The hairs on the back of his neck rose. Esposito worried again that something was luring him in for an attack. But now he was worried that whatever was doing that wasn't a living human being. The singing kept changing, coming from one direction, then another, then back to the first direction, then another, and so on. At one point, he literally stood and spun around in a circle, desperately trying to figure out where to run to next. His heart was pounding. He started to think that he'd be attacked at any second, and he worried that whatever was about to attack him would be something he'd never been trained to defend himself from. And then, the singing abruptly stopped. And a moment later, he felt a hand <gasps> tap his shoulder, and he spun around. It was the teacher he'd come to help out, asking him, what are you doing down here? She'd been calling out for him and he hadn't heard her just like she hadn't heard him. She'd followed the sounds he'd been making to find him. After looking at him with some concern for his safety in her eyes, she asked him if he was okay, ready to help her lock up and then walk her to her vehicle. Esposito was so confused. He composed himself as fast as he could, tried to act normal, told her that of course he'd help lock things up for the night as they left. All was now completely silent in the building other than the sounds he and the teacher were making. Esposito later said, I didn't get that impression that there was something still out there. It was kind of like gone. It just disappeared. As they walked to her vehicle, Esposito asked the teacher if she'd been singing. She had not, but she had also heard someone singing. Like he had initially done, she had also assumed that someone left a radio on. When they arrived at her car, she told Esposito goodnight, drove away, and they never talked about the incident again. And campus patrol officer Frank Esposito would never have another paranormal encounter at the school. So much mystery with the paranormal. 
You can be so skeptical and never see anything for years and years, but then suddenly out of nowhere have a very intense experience in a place where a haunting has been occurring for years, a place where the haunting will continue to occur, but you will not experience it ever again. The world of spirits seems so fickle sometimes. Maybe someday we'll figure out how to consistently open the door to it whenever we'd like. Until then, it will continue to be an enduring mystery we can only pretend to understand, revealing itself to us only on its terms, whatever those terms might be. You know who I was thinking about? Who? Teresita Bonita. <laughs> I think, I think Teresita Boss, you, you didn't say Teresita last week. There was some other, mm. it was Bonita. It was, I don't know what you said, but ter- I like Teresita Bonita. <laughs> I might've said like Tortilla Bonita. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but like, it did give me strong vibes of like, it also Chicago area. That story. It feels. Oh, maybe they're working together behind the scenes. <laughs> but it does feel like Emily is trying. She is trying to say something. I know. How frustrating would that be? Yes. If you did know who, you, well, you would know who your killer was. Well, maybe it depends if you were attacked from That's behind. True. That's like true. Like if she was uh, blunt force trauma to the back yeah. of the head, she might not. But let's let's say she did. Sure. And she has been trying to convey that for over half a century. And just can't communicate how she needs to to get that message across. Yeah. And it's, and, and at some point, you know, your killer is going to be dead and then long dead. And then mm-hmm. it's like, well, then how much weight does it even carry to have it solved? Right, 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 right. Yeah, I did like have this whole thought <clears throat> about what happens when you're murdered and people and your murder is not solved by other earthly beings. Does that leave you as a soul in a weird limbo? Is that true for everyone? Mm-hmm. And But some some spirits are stronger or... I don't know, like spend their time closer to the thinnest part of the veil where they're able to know. communicate, but other spirits, I don't know, maybe they don't have any other unresolved business or maybe it wasn't like their character in life mm-hmm. to, you know, be a disruptor or somebody yeah. who was persistent. Like how does all that, how yeah, you are in life yeah. and how you die in life, how does that all play out in death Tr- right, or, totally. or in the other, in the afterlife, I should say. Totally. Yeah. Why, why do some people seem to come back and others don't? Or maybe they all do. Maybe we just some just see and hear some, right? Or maybe only some are strong enough to like break through. Like, are Mm -hmm. there? And maybe some don't want to. Maybe they just move on, right? Like, I'm somebody who is annoyingly persistent. I cannot (laughs) let shit go. Mm. But then, like, you're somebody who's like, well, you know, I mean, what do you do? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. What? So then, how does that play out? Yeah, on the other side, I don't know. I have a few picks. Okay. Uh, This first is a Chicago newspaper clipping from October of 1969. Small picture of Emily Kessig on the left there. Just could not find anything better. It's not the best resolution. Yeah, where Tyler just put his cursor. Yep, thanks, Tyler. Yeah, unfortunately, there was no better pictures that I could find. Her poor parents. I just kept thinking about that over, especially like with everything that's going on in Moscow right now. Yeah. It just, like, I'm so grateful for those. They seem to have caught the person, yeah. Yes, I mean, I hope the justice system does its job. I do hope that it is this person. I hope they're not falsely accused, like totally. all those things. But for the victim's parents, I have the most hope for them that they can find some sense of closure and peace. Because I think this is worse. Right, totally. You know, Absolutely. like, no one to blame, no one to be angry with. Like, oh, <clears throat> God. What a nightmare. Uh, this next pick, supposedly this is the building where campus patrol officer Frank Esposito encountered Emily's ghost. This is building E, the building where she is most often seen. Oh, man. I went to community college for like a year and they mm-hmm. all look like that. I know a lot of them do look very similar the way they're built. Yeah. Uh, the next one, a picture of the Morton College Theater seats. Uh, Emily's seat allegedly somewhere in the back. These kids don't uh, seem too scared. This is probably during the day. <laughs> that also looks like summer camp. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And then this last one, this is just the best pick of campus I could find. You know, like you said, a lot of um, community colleges, not like the most like picturesque campuses, but just yeah. very functional. Mm-hmm. Looks nice. Got some nice trees. Buildings look, you know, clean. Square buildings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I used to perform at a lot of community colleges early it's on so in stand-up. Cute. And, and it, they did tend to look alike. Yeah. And actually a lot of like liberal, little uh, liberal arts colleges also look alike. Well, not a lot of funding. Mm, yeah, is, is yeah. my guess. Like the hope there is that you know one of your alum goes on to do something and then yeah. gives back, and then you can expand. But if you don't have a huge endowment, totally state versus private, all that stuff. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything more on that one? <sighs> okay, the paper route detail. Mm-hmm. That kid that found her on the paper route. Of course, I immediately flash back to my childhood. Oh yeah, if and- you found some bloody clue. Yeah, I, well, I did find a dead body once, you know, that we've talked about that here. Ugh. And I mean, it was just sad because it was on my paper route. It was, I had these two apartment buildings, which was great because you always had air conditioning in the summer and heat in the winter and you weren't yeah, stuck yeah. outside. And then also, you know, as a young female in the dead yeah, of safer. night, I felt safer. So anyways, so you had the Churchill Towers and then... I think it's okay to say that. And then the, the one across from it, I can't remember what it was called. Yeah. And this old man, he had a heart attack and died like in the vestibule. Do you know uh, what I mean? Like yeah, you, yeah, yeah. When you come in. It's like one door, vestibule, next door. Yep. It was the scariest thing ever. Man. I mean, I had been to plenty of funerals. Yeah, but still. But to find a body just. Oof, yeah. Mm-hmm, and your eyes play a trick on you at that mm-hmm. time. And like, you're just kind of twitchy if I'm you sure. are out at three or four in the morning by yourself especially as a teenager totally that poor kid yeah i don't know it's all it's all very confusing i hope that she can move on and that she's not stuck forever yeah yeah me too yeah well now it's time to leave illinois and head southwest to new mexico new mexico right after today's mid-show sponsor break this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What are the things that weigh you down on a day-to-day basis? What kind of stress are you holding on to? Do you spend much of your day going over things in your brain over and over until they are so distracting it affects your mental health? Well, don't worry. You're not alone. We all carry different stressors, some big, some small. When we keep things bottled up, the results can be negative. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest without fear or judgment. It's a place to work through what is heavy on your mind and heart so that you can feel lighter and happier. I'm always holding on to something. It's the way my anxious brain works. I'm continually worried that I've done something wrong, that I've hurt the feelings of someone I love, and that I have let someone down. I'm stressed that I'm not being a good enough mom or wife. I panic that our life will implode at any given moment and it'll all be my fault. Thankfully, I have an amazing therapist who helps me talk through each of these scenarios. After each and every appointment, I feel lighter, happier, and more capable of showing up as my most authentic self. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash scared to death today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash scared to death. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. Summer is just around the corner. Who's excited? I know I am. 
With the warmer, sunnier days calling your name, the last place you're going to want to be is in your kitchen, cooking and meal prepping. Make your life easier with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Factors Never Frozen, Always Fresh Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Think of all the extra time you will get outside in the summer sun when you aren't wasting hours in the kitchen. I think I speak for everyone when I say that the summer is the busiest time of the year. We are all trying to cram in as many things as possible, from concerts to vacations and everything in between. With Kyler home from college and Monroe on her break too, I want to spend as much time as possible with them. And while I truly love to cook, the summer is the one time of year that I'm the least interested in doing that for three meals a day. So I lean on Factor to help keep me healthy and in step with my diet. I'm obsessed with the honey yogurt pancakes for breakfast, the pork El Pastor for lunch, and the cilantro lime barramundi for dinner. So easy and saves me so much time. Head to factormeals.com slash scared to death 50 and use code scared to death 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code scared to death 50 at factormeals.com slash scared to death 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Thanks for hearing our sponsors out, Creeps and Peepers. Uh, not much setup to this one, Asterix. Uh, I'll jump in, but still have some history to cover, cover after the spooky music kicks in. <laughs> I said cover. I know. I, I was thinking about Kyler. He's been doing a really funny thing lately. Yeah, please. Please, please. Can I have a steak dinner? <laughs> yeah, please. Just like for the most preposterous things. Please, please, dad. Could you start a Shake Shack so I could get a job there, dad? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like the the <laughs> joke is that like the the dad just gives can can't def- uh, defend himself against that voice. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like the the phrasing for it, but just gives in. Like no matter what the request is, just absurd requests. Yeah, yeah. Can you just can you can you please give me all your time and money? Please, 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 Dad. Please, please, that way we want it. <laughs> <laughs> Ask your teenagers to do that. It's pretty funny. <laughs> so the massive, almost two and a half million square mile Santa Fe National Forest seems to be a hot spot for a variety of paranormal activity. Over several decades now, at least, there have been so many reported UFO and apparition sightings, as well as a lot of mysterious disappearances. Today, I'll only share a bit of alleged activity from three locations inside the park. As I mentioned earlier, the Holy Ghost Campground, El Camino del Diablo, and the Pecos Wilderness. Time now for the tale of paranormal activity in the Santa Fe National Forest. Starting off with the Holy Ghost Campground. Uh, This campground is described on one camping website as an isolated but scenic place to spend the night. Holy Ghost Campground is situated in a beautiful steep canyon right along Holy Ghost Creek. This campground is located in a canyon surrounded by the Pecos Mountains. Thousands of people go there every summer for camping, picnics, fishing, and hiking. Despite the campground supposedly being haunted by a Spanish priest, or the ghost of one, who was killed during the Pueblo Revolt of the 17th century. The Pueblo Revolt of 1680 is considered one of the most successful uprisings of indigenous peoples against colonizers in North America. In 1670, the Spanish governor of New Mexico ordered several Pueblo religious leaders to be executed and others to be whipped for not bending the knee to Spanish demands. Pope, a religious leader and war captain, was living in Santa Fe, and Pope and 46 other Pueblo people's leaders were convicted of sorcery for practicing their religions. And rather than accept their punishment, he and some other leaders and warriors decided to try and push the Spanish out of New Mexico. After Pope was released from prison, he went into hiding, spent the next four years planning a rebellion involving two dozen Pueblo communities in New Mexico. Coordinating the revolt was not easy. These communities spoke different languages, 
and were spaced out over roughly 400 miles long before cars and trains and such. Holy crap. Pope sent runners with knotted ropes to the different pueblos. These ropes were to be used for a countdown to a rebellion. Each day, Pueblo leaders would undo one and only one of the knots, understanding that when the last knot was untied, that would be the day of the revolt. But then plans were changed when two of the runners were caught and killed by spies, and the revolt was rescheduled and moved up from August 13th to August 10th. That day, all of the Pueblo communities united in revolt against their Spanish oppressors. Pope and his followers stole Spanish horses to prevent people from escaping. They blocked roads, cut off the water supply, and burned churches. Roughly 400 Spanish, including many priests, were butchered. After a week, an additional approximately 2,000 Spanish fled Santa Fe to avoid suffering the same fate. And they took many Pueblos hostage and some converted Pueblo peoples with them. Many of them resettled in and around El Paso, Texas. This revolt would keep the Spanish out of New Mexico for the next dozen years, which would allow the Pueblo cultures and languages to be preserved. The returning Spanish did reconquer the Pueblo peoples, but now they allowed them a greater level of autonomy than before in order to prevent future rebellions. According to local New Mexican ghost tour guide, Alan Pacheco, a priest fleeing from the revolt hid in what is now the Holy Ghost campground, but was captured and then killed. And his ghost has allegedly been spotted ever since. Campers have been startled on many occasions over the years by a shadowy apparition seemingly running in fear through the campground in the middle of the night as if they're being chased. The campground also seems to be a hot spot for bad luck, an abnormal amount of car accidents, violent assaults, and missing people, including a missing state trooper, have all been reported in and around the area in recent decades. According again to that same local tour guide, Alan Pacheco, the Pecos wilderness surrounding the campground is full of all manner of strange happenings. He says, There are a number of people who have gone missing in that vicinity. It's like the Bermuda Triangle of New Mexico. People disappear into thin air. No clothing or bones are ever found. There's all kinds of speculation. Maybe there's a cosmic doorway that opens up there. Maybe a Star Trek-type dimensional wormhole. Different beings, different energies, you name it. People have claimed to spot UFOs in the area. Others have seen strange shadows walking through the trees, mysterious lights floating off in the distance. Sometimes disembodied chanting is heard when people hike through the forest. On October 18th, 2019, a group of editors for Outside Online spent the night at Holy Ghost Campground to investigate these paranormal claims. Nothing happened that night, but the following morning, when editor Aleta Berchiski got up to go fishing at the Holy Ghost Creek, her hook got snagged on a root on the bank. And then as she was working on getting the hook loose, she said she saw a dark figure of a man approaching her, saying he was walking weird, kind of loping. At first, she thought it was her husband coming over to talk to her. It was chilly outside, so she assumed he was walking strangely because he was cold and trying to get warmed up. She briefly went back to unsnagging her hook, and then when she turned around to speak to her husband, the figure she'd so clearly seen had vanished. Far from the first figure to vanish in the area. Alan Pacheco told the Albuquerque Journal, As far as the area goes, there's also all kinds of activity beyond belief of people that go missing. As far as that Holy Ghost camp, there are all kinds of stories with that. Okay, now let's move over to the second of the three spots within the Santa Fe National Forest I've chosen to focus on today. The Pecos Wilderness. There have been numerous mysterious disappearances in this area, such as the disappearance of Robert Amos Browning over 25 years ago. On May 15th, 1997, crazy that that is over 25 years ago, <laughs> a truck was found with his window rolled down near Monastery Lake, which is close to the Benedictine Monastery at the edge of the town of Pecos. The truck belonged to Browning, and when it was discovered, it looked like he'd been living out of his car. 
Inside the truck, investigators found his passport, ID, food, fishing gear, a sleeping bag, clothes, and money. The night before he went missing, May 14th, Amos had spent the night with his brother Miles down in Albuquerque. He'd also met with a Navy recruiter earlier in the day and was supposed to take a placement test the next day, but never showed up. Amos told his brother he was going camping in the Pecos wilderness after his placement test, so he left his brother's house on May 15th, hasn't been seen or heard from since. Three days after his disappearance, on May 18th, a search team that included a helicopter, rescue dogs, and police officers looked for Amos. Other local search teams also joined in to help, and no trace of him has ever been found. Search dogs never picked up a scent leading away from his truck. No scrap of his clothing was found outside his truck, no footprints, nothing. It was as if he had just been plucked out of the world and thrown into some other one. Jumping a dozen years ahead now to the next disappearance. On September 6, 2009, 61-year-old Mel Melvin Nadell, a gym owner and family man, went hunting with his brother-in-law and his friend uh, Joe Munez in the Pecos Wilderness. Mel worked as a Pilates instructor in Santa Fe. The men traveled to Elk Mountain, north of Pecos, for their hunting trip. They drove down a logging road and set up camp near, the lo- near that road. At 4.30 p.m., Mel's companions left camp to walk down another trail. Mel decided to stay behind, assemble a hunting blind close to camp. Mel's fellow hunters returned at 7 p.m., and Mel was gone. His locked Jeep was still parked at the campsite. Most of his gear and his GPS were still inside of it, but his bow was missing. There were no signs of where Mel could have gone. Mel's friends looked for him in the woods, but received no answer when they called out his name. They honked their horns, fired shots into the air, hoping that Mel would hear them and find his way back. Nothing. Hours passed, and they decided to call the police. The police hoped Mel would be all right because the area was not extremely remote. Despite the men being out hunting, you could still see the lights of Santa Fe off in the distance. And they knew that Mel had appropriate clothing on, he was an experienced outdoorsman, and he had a bow, knife, and gun with him because all of those items went missing from camp. The next day, authorities stated, uh, started a search for Mel that would become one of the largest searches in state history. This time, tracking dogs did find Mel's footprints and scent trail, but what they found only makes his disappearance much more mysterious. His trail led 100 yards away from camp along a path, and then the scent suddenly stopped and the footprints ended very abruptly. There was no sign of a struggle or an animal attack at that spot. It looked like Mel, just randomly out in the woods at the end of this trail, lifted himself off the ground and just disappeared. Immediately, some began to speculate that Mel had been abducted by aliens. UFO sightings in this area, very common and have been for years. Some people uh, thought that perhaps Mel had meticulously backtracked, careful to step in his previous footprints, and then somehow ran off to start a new life. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> exactly. That seems way less likely than aliens to me. That would mean that once back at camp, he would have had to have uh, started a new trail that no one searching for him could find somehow, or that he arranged from someone in a vehicle to come pick him up, whisk him away, and never be seen again. Very doubtful. Mel was, by all accounts, very happy. He had a wife and daughter whom he seemed to love very much, didn't have money problems. He was a successful business owner, lived in a wealthy and beautiful suburb of Santa Fe, didn't have any known enemies, and never accessed his bank account after going missing. Another theory was that he was dragged off by an animal, but there was no evidence on the ground that he was ever attacked. No blood, drag marks, animal footprints, nothing. The trail and campsite, completely undisturbed. No trace of Mel of Mel Nadell has ever been found. One more now from Camino del Diablo. 71-year-old Emma Tresp was from Little Rock, Arkansas. Although she was older, she was healthy, very active. And on August 31st, 1998, Emma left her daughter's house in Oklahoma for a road trip. She was heading to Pecos for a retreat at the Benedictine Monastery. 
She'd been there before, knew the route well, and had planned to be at the monastery in the late afternoon or early evening of August 31st, but never showed up. But almost made it. On September 6th, a hunter found Emma's abandoned Honda Civic on Pecos County Service Road 63A, a road ominously known as Camino del Diablo or Devil's Road. Her suitcase and food were still inside her car. She was reported missing on September 8th. The police learned that Emma was last seen alive at a service station in Santa Rosa, New Mexico, August 31st, around 3 p.m. She stopped for gas and was captured by security cameras. Somehow, she ended up on Devil's Road, which does not lead to the monastery. It only leads to a rugged wilderness area. The police think that Emma had gotten confused and made a wrong turn, and that her car got stuck in a rut. A search team found Emma's footprints circling her car, but none of her footprints led into the surrounding forest. Scent dogs could not find a trail leading from her car to anywhere. Trackers couldn't figure out where she might have gone. It seemed like Emma never left the immediate vicinity of her vehicle, so where was she? All of her things were still in the car. Suitcase, purse, fully charged phone, and cash. There was no note, no unidentified fingerprints in the car, no signs of a struggle that would be found if she had been abducted. Hundreds of law enforcement officers and volunteers searched for her. There was a reward for any information leading to her safe return, but all of that led to nothing. Emma Tresp, not a trace of her has ever been found. Theories regarding what happened to her range from an animal attack, which there's no signs of, to a homicide, which again, there's no signs of, or alien abduction. A lot of UFOs have been spotted over that area as well over the years. Did something not from this world take her? Is that how she was able to vanish so thoroughly? Emma Tresp disappeared just five miles from where Mel Nadell disappeared. Amos Browning's truck was just about six to eight miles from Emma Tresp and Mel. These are some of the most well-known disappearance cases in the area, but the Pecos Wilderness, specifically the area surrounding Devil's Road, is a hotspot for many, many more disappearances and strange activity. Yet another theory, in addition to alien abduction, is that this location houses some type of interdimensional portal that people literally slip out of this dimension and into another one, which if somehow true would explain how people go missing without leaving any evidence behind. The Santa Fe National Forest is full of natural and supernatural dangers. Does it actually house some type of portal that can open and close? Indigenous people from the area believed long ago that evil spirits and shape-shifting creatures lived in this wilderness. Did they sometimes pop in from whatever dimension these missing people were sent to? Early European settlers reported seeing strange lights in these woods and noticed centuries ago that people who ventured into this wilderness often disappeared. Is that also linked to some kind of portal? Were those strange lights aliens? Are the aliens linked to the portal? Do they perhaps not enter our atmosphere from space, but slip into our world from this supposed portal? Who knows? We could speculate for days. There is no shortage of strained tales from this seemingly haunted area of New Mexico. I will never go camping there. <laughs> yeah, you'd be too freaked out now. Too freaked out. Well, at the beginning, I had a hard time not chuckling because I was thinking about our friend Doug Mellard, who's a hilarious comic, and he has a really funny story about oh, yeah. being in New Mexico with his then fiance, now wife, like walking from her parents, like from the main house, like the guest house. Very funny. Do you know that Doug's greatest fear is to be abducted by aliens? I get it. A family friend uh, shared some crazy story when he was like younger that he totally <laughs> believes. And like in, in New Mexico, he knows about a lot of the UFO kind of sightings and abduction, you know, like uh, uh, stories. Doug and I shouldn't be left alone. I'll oh, just yeah. cry. It's like one of his like big fears is to be, you know, some crazy race of aliens beams him up into their ship and does God knows what with him. Well, then why is he spending time in New Mexico? What's he thinking? <laughs> I have a few pictures. Okay. It is a really pretty area. I bet it's gorgeous. I've never been. This first one, Nisa Vista of a portion of the Santa Fe National Forest. 
Oh my gosh, that is beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it really is. You can see so far. So, so far. Sky is so crisp there. Uh, this next one is shot of the Holy Ghost campground. Just pretty again. Yeah, it is. Uh, next one, sad, uh, you know, picture of Mel Nadell with his Ooh. wife and daughter taken shortly before his disappearance. Mel. Could not find a definitive pic of Robert Amos Browning. Okay, also, like, that picture is so dated. That is yes. so great. He's like, yeah. he's a very specific person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's the Pilates instructor, right? Yeah. Yep, mm -hmm. like, I can see it. Uh, this next one, best pic I could find of Emma Tresp. Again, uh, so sad. I don't, that is especially, I don't know what's worse, like, that man being abducted and leaving his wife and child mm -hmm. behind or this older woman where you just feel like, oh, So vulnerable. No. Yes. And then. And she was the footsteps around the car, right? Yeah, yeah. That's so weird. I know. Well, his story is so weird. With I know, they're both strong weird. strong scent that just leads for, I think it was about 100 yards Boop. and then phew, just nothing. Yeah. That's so weird. Uh, and then this next one, maybe these are the aliens that uh, have been abducting people in New Mexico. Hey, dudes. Or maybe it was these uh, aliens in this next picture. Just something to think about. Ugh, I don't like that. Those are your least favorite. Like, would you rather be abducted by the first ones or these ones? The first ones seem kind of cute and friendly. These ones don't, though? No, I don't like it. You don't like the shape of their heads? Yeah, I don't know. It's just, yeah. Maybe it's the, the uh, disproportionate top to bottom mm -hmm. kind of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, God, I don't like that. <laughs> I really didn't like that lady you showed me last week. Mm, I know, that was like a that. creepy picture. Yee-chihuahua. Okay, let's see. What kind? Of, uh, yeah, I just was like writing down aliens, aliens, aliens. Okay, yeah. but in the very, in the setup, mm -hmm. I, I need to talk for a second. This is not scary. I need to talk about that knot system. Isn't that so cool? That is so genius. Genius. And also, I was like, I got lost for a minute because I was like, oh my God. Okay, if we're talking about, what was it, 400 miles? Yeah, 400 miles. I assume like I meant square, it didn't say square miles, but I'm, when it's set, when it's is phrased that way, I'm assuming square miles. It's gotta be. Yeah. Okay, so with that thought in mind, then I was thinking about the ropes and how mm -hmm. like, well, this community, this Pueblos might have, you know, a rope with 15 knots on it, but then you have right. to like account for like time and space and distance because I don't, I didn't get the feeling that the mm. ropes were being sent out with different runners simultaneously. So I was thinking like, oh my God. The runners like, would have to undo knots if, if like they're yes. out there multiple days. Absolutely. Yes, it's just so like, it's so well thought out. It's so meticulous. It's so genius. Yeah, because what, what was crazy about that is that was uh, the Pueblos people's, uh, not a centralized uh, kind of uh, group. There was yeah. no like central leader, no uh, consistent language. Mm -hmm. Yes, so, so that a, as well. A, a loose affiliation, very loose affiliation of tribes who all you know wanted to work towards the same end of not being underneath the yoke of you know sp the Spanish rule. And Can you just imagine like some dude like shows up and he's like, "Here's your rope." I know. And here's one for you, and you're like, "I imagine but, they have to find like translators." And it's like. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows how to count. I don't care what language. So it's like. But to convey a revolt, I they know. had to have found translators. There had to have been people like, okay, this person knows uh, this group's language and this group's language. So they'll, you know, and then there's another person who knows the first group's language and then this other group over here. It had to right, be right. very coordinated. I mean, it took, it took them years to put this plan in motion. Well, and then also like to then trust the translators yeah. who could be spies. And there I were mean, some spies. There was absolutely. a sabotage, but they still pulled it off. Yeah. It's so wild. That knot thing. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. That is one of the coolest things I've ever heard. And then aliens. The, <laughs> the footprints around the car. The like, whoop. That, yeah. I just don't know how you could even, what else could you even think it is? It just feels like like a. I mean, there was the, their thought. I, I read another uh, source. There was a thought that like, okay, what if somebody else driving by, very little used road, you know, their tire tracks didn't seem to, from what they said in the articles, didn't seem to go over her footprints, but did somebody else driving by 
just grab her and throw her in the car. But then what's weird about that is there was cash just laying around her car. I know. Like, it, like a little old lady is not, and I say this with like respect, but. Yeah, not typically. She's not a typical like sex sexual target. Yeah, not yeah. typically. Yeah, and, and she's yeah. more yeah because again she's more vulnerable. You want her money, her jewelry, her car. I mean, her sadly, phone. sadly, they sometimes are victims of sexual attacks for sure. I know, but but, but in that situation, it, it is weird to me that nothing was dropped on the ground. Like nothing seemed out of place. It seemed like, and I read this in yet another article that there was speculation that maybe she got willingly into someone's car <sighs> and then they drove off. But she didn't. But then why didn't they come? I don't know. The whole thing is very strange. And also, I mean, they would have to pretty much kill her immediately for there to just be like no evidence anywhere ever no one ever saw her or as long as she stayed in her vehicle kill her somewhere down the road you know whatever but yeah but no yeah no trace has ever been found of many people in that area that does make it really especially creepy Mm -hmm. and it really makes you think twice about staying in that area doesn't it (laughs) yeah yeah because it's not just a one-off or two no i mean i will say numbers wise there are lots of people who camp and hunt and stuff in that same area mm-hmm. and do not disappear. But there are lots of people that do. Right. But statistically, you're still I'm it's like saying, I don't yeah, care very about small, <laughs> very small possibility. Statistics are dumb. Are they? Yeah. No, they really are. No, they're not. Numbers are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> ah, we get, Next week, we got to get some fresh squishies up here. I'm sick of seeing those three. I love this trio. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just start kicking Layla's out. I'm like, you can't be, you can't sit with us. My three little musketeers. No, well, last week, do you remember your two black ones were doing some weird stuff? Mm-hmm. They were getting frisky. Whoa, 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 whoa. Um, now it's, what if it was this? <laughs> heads and butts? Layla centipede. Oh, oh, I totally <laughs> missed that. I totally, totally missed that. All right, well, you want to talk about... This new thing that I found, mm-hmm. that I found, that a fan wrote in about the Kundu, the the Kundus. Yes, we're going to Afghanistan. Okay. Okay, and I know that at the top of our show, there is a general, very like everything in the show is explicit, and I generally don't do this, but is there this is one a, exceptionally. Yes, there's just a lot of talk about suicide. So for parents okay. who have children listening, I think that sometimes that's something that you're not ready to explain to them. So that's one thing. And, you know, if it's just not good for you, then now's a good time to bounce out and we'll see you for the next story, which is not like this. Okay. (sighs) Now to our story. More new stuff. You ready, Spaghetti? I am. Let's do it. All right. To begin this story, I must start at the moment my life changed amongst many changes. I was in my fifth year as a combat engineer in the United States Army, and after years of waiting, trying to deploy to serve my country in a way that I viewed as honorable for a service member, I finally got my chance. I deployed to Afghanistan in 2011 and began running routes trying to find IEDs. During our tour, we found quite a few and thankfully and hopefully potentially saved a few lives. However, this is not a story of war. We had hit the ground in April, and it was not until October that my nightmare would begin. I was sitting in a guard tower with an Afghani soldier whom the U.S. was planning to hand the security of the northern provinces in Afghanistan over to. We chatted and exchanged war stories, and it wasn't long before I was asking if there were any Afghan Halloween tales. Due to the language barrier, it took longer than intended for both of us to understand the context of my initial inquiry. But soon enough, the local soldier was telling me the story of the Kunduz demon. 
The way he spoke, I will never forget. It was as though the words were more clearly spoken than anything I'd ever heard before, as though something was speaking through him to convey the message as clearly as possible. What the soldier said was as follows. The demon of the Kunduz is of a woman, an old woman. She wears a blue burqa, and unlike many other folklore, she does not need darkness to bring darkness to her victim. If you see her, look away. I asked why I would need to look away, kind of chuckling to myself. I'm a non-believer, and I just enjoy the elements of these kinds of stories. But the solemn look on his face made me slightly uneasy. As he continued, she will take everything, everything from you. If you ever see the old woman in Kundu Square, look away. I asked how I would recognize this old woman. How would I know to look away? And was told, she'll stroke her face as though she has a beard. It was not long after hearing this story, thinking it was nothing, that I called my brother and told him the story I had heard, and he, like me, seemed amused. Being one of the few people that didn't subscribe to the supernatural beliefs, such as myself, I thought I could tell him the story just to feed his interest of my time in service. A couple months later, our unit was rolling through Kundu Square. I saw a woman, hunched over, standing dead center in the traffic circle. It was as though no one else noticed her standing there in her blue burqa. I stared. I couldn't even move. I leaned against my M2 machine gun just looking at her, and eventually... Her head snapped towards me. Her body seemed to relax immediately, but I couldn't look away. She took her right hand and slowly reached up and began stroking an invisible beard. My heart skipped a beat. She could see me. She was staring through my soul, or so I thought. I snapped out of it thinking, I'm sure this is something that happens all the time. I called my best friend over the radio. Vic 3 Golf, this is Vic 5 Golf. Did you see that creepy ass beard stroking bitch on the square? (laughs) He came back almost immediately, negative Vic 5. I let it go, but the unit would see her two more times without me after that. Fast forward, my comrades and I are back home, talking regularly about going back, missing the combat, the tension, and the stress. Over half a year had passed, and I had completely forgotten about the creepy little story I'd been told in a lonely guard tower in what used to be the Taliban stronghold. I was lying in bed next to my now wife early one morning when I received a phone call from my father. I ignored it, believing it to be nothing more than the old man wanting to chat about some kind of drama his life was now enveloped in. But then he called again and again. And I finally called him back and he answered the phone sobbing. Your brother hung himself. I sat up, startled and confused. I immediately had the questions you would expect. What was he saying? What did he mean? What happened? Why? After a huge emotional outburst, I drove from Tennessee to Illinois to meet my parents and family so that we might all grieve together. When I arrived, I was invited to stay with my sister-in-law, niece, and nephew. I found out that he'd hung himself in his own garage with an extension cord. After a few nights of talking to my sister-in-law, we found ourselves sitting in some lawn chairs in the garage, talking through everything, when she pulled out her phone. Your brother called me when it happened. Do you want to hear it? I inhaled. She told me it was a not good message, but it was the last words he'd ever said on this earth, and so I agreed to listen. He had called from the stepladder he was standing on, and when he stepped off, his last breaths were audible on the voicemail. The next day, the neighbor across the street invited us over for dinner. All four of us had been received into his home warmly. 
My niece and nephew were far tougher than me, cracking jokes, asking questions of the neighbor, and so on. I realized my phone was almost dead and asked my sister-in-law if I might be excused to go plug it in at her house across the street and I would return shortly. And this is where things took a weird turn. As I walked into the house alone, I felt a somber fog clouding every corner. I plugged in my phone and felt compelled to walk downstairs into the basement where I sat in my brother's rocking chair and flipped unconsciously through a stack of magazines he'd had sitting on a side table. I noticed there was a light behind the stairs that suddenly went off. In my grief-stricken state, I just let it go and walked back upstairs. After arriving at the top of the stairs, I turned to the hallway to my left with the kitchen directly behind me. I noticed a picture of me, my two brothers, and my dad, all arms over shoulders in an embrace before I had deployed. I stared into the picture and began to break down and crying for at least five minutes before saying, please just give me a sign that you're going to take care of your family. Through my teary eyes, I noticed something in the picture, something that shouldn't have been there, something that was never there before. But it wasn't part of the picture. In fact, it was a reflection of a silhouette or a form behind me. Something or someone Mm. clad in a blue burqa. I spun around as quick as I could to confront that kunduz. I knew it was her. As soon as I did, all the pots and pans and dishes, literally everything in all of the cabinets fell out, making a great noise. This was not my brother. I went back to the neighbor's house and reluctantly told my sister-in-law what had just happened. That night on the couch, it was difficult. The outline of the old woman refused to disappear. And after a few nights, I did what I have heard Lindsay suggest so many times. No, you fucking idiot. Get out, I challenged the woman. Follow me instead. Don't stay here, you fucking coward. And surely, she did follow me and continued to curse my life. On the way home, after everything was settled, at best it could be, I received a call from Vic 3 telling me our commander had died by suicide. And this would not be the last friend I would say goodbye to. Three more ended up taking their lives within the next two months. Oh my God. And it was not long before the words of that old October horror tale had caught up with me when I finally put it together. The legend of the Kunduz, the woman wearing the blue burqa and stroking her beard. She tried to take everything from me. I was then and still am a non-believer. I don't know what I saw at my sister-in-law's that house, at my sister-in-law's house that day and the nights that followed, and I don't know if the guys in my unit who also died by suicide did so because they too saw the kunduz. I guess I'll never know, but it seems like a lot more than a coincidence. Yee. I, I literally have chills all over my body because it's so sad and it's yeah. also so fucking scary. So fucking scary that that, that that if that like an entity like that if they could be real, oh my god! Ugh. Oh my god! I d- if you look at it, you just fucking just take yeah, just destroy your life. Yeah, like every last inch of your life, and then other people who saw it, like mm-hmm. what is the ripple effect there? And those other servicemen who died by suicide, did they know the story? Had he shared the Kundu story with them? Like, had what if it's perpe- uh, perpetuated by telling the story? Because mm-hmm. the brother never saw it, but the storyteller told the brother about it. Like what, what weird creepy ass piece of shit demon thing is this? Right. Who knows? Yeah. So heavy, but like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, just a, a totally different kind of demon. Yeah. That's a really scary story. I think so. Mm -hmm. Like complete and utter like infiltration into your life and a bizarre and a curse story. Yeah. 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 (sighs) 
Are you ready for a slightly lighter tale? I wonder if that entity is supposed to be a real person who can curse you mm. or like a, like a, a being, a living being of some kind, or just a regular person with some kind of mystical abilities or a, a ghost, you know, type of yeah. undead entity. I, yeah, I don't know. I'm certain that in the language barrier, a lot of specifics and details yeah. were probably kind of lost in the translation, you know? Can you imagine trying to tell a ghost story to somebody who doesn't speak your language? Right. How, like, complicated is that? And and I'm uh, I'm fascinated by it. You know, a lot of these, you know, named entities, mm-hmm. they, can, they can be specific to, like, one town. Right. They can be, like, a very local legend. So who knows if that particular legend even uh, spread out around Afghanistan. It might just be in that one area. Oh, yeah. It might just be at the Kunduz Square. Yep. might just be just a local thing around there. Oh. And there can be, which makes me think about, like, how many other legends could be out there around the world. How many other creatures we've never even heard of mm-hmm. could be in, like, this little town, that little town spread out around the globe and in a way that somehow feels more terrifying to me because then it feels like there's more evil entities out there as opposed Mm -hmm. i mean this is such a silly thing to think about in your head but as opposed to like one dude who kind of like bounces around he he can't (laughs) be that busy how can he keep up but like if he's got a lot of minions or she or whatever you know what i'm saying it's like or yeah strange (laughs) concept to think of Mm -hmm. (sighs) Oh, God. Last night I was working on this very late at night Mm -hmm. and you were getting ready to go to bed. And that's why I had you close all the blinds because I was so uncomfortable at the idea of like looking out a window. Mm. And, you know, you know, when it's dark out and you when you look at the window, it's almost like you don't see anything beyond it. But then like, you know, if there's a breeze, you you kind of somehow see that through the window. Oh, God, I was so, so creeped out. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, I had to stop eventually after these and just, I was like, oh, I'll finish them in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was so scared. Whew. Okay. Now, like I said, onto a lighter tale. Creepy, a little mm-hmm. bit lighter. So a train ride, a very, very, very long train ride. And I, and I think, you know, just touching on what we said at the beginning of the episode, I feel really certain that we've not had a train ride. Yeah, yeah, I do not recall any story that we've told here set in a train. Yeah, me either. And I do love travel by train. I think it's really cool. I mean, there are obviously like these incredible luxury trains out there that that I've never been on, but the photographs, that's what I imagine it being like back in the olden days. Now it's like, you know, Amtrak. Which is, it's fine. It serves a purpose. And it would be fun to go in one of those luxury dining cars. (gasps) Oh my God. Have a nice meal as you're so like, cool. especially like maybe in the evening if there's a bunch of lights or during the day where there's a bunch of like great scenic views. Uh, yeah. That is really cool. I do love the idea of traveling by train, mm-hmm. which just feels otherworldly. But what if you were on the train and you, okay, what if you're on a really, really long train ride? Let's just say like 10, 12 hours. Yeah. And like hour two, you're pretty certain that you see something, but there's nowhere to get off. Yeah, that's scary. And you're probably stuck in your car because you have a seat mm-hmm. with like an assigned seat ah it is a very good setting for a terrible horror tale yeah all right here we go hello to our fearful leaders of the creeps and peepers Mm. my wife has been pushing me to share my story with you so i finally sat down to type it out this happened to me on a train and i'm not sure if you've had any train stories yet and if not hold on to your butts (laughs) because this one still puckers my sphincters when i think about it (laughs) this happened in 1989 when i was 20 years old and had been traipsing around the west and southwest since finishing high school trying to figure out what i wanted to do with my life i found work on oil rigs in western nevada making good money and promptly blowing it in nevada's nightlife after five months i was getting itchy to move again and was looking for a place to set my sights on when i got a call from my older sister She was living in Denver and had just had a baby with her new husband. 
I'd not seen them in a while, so I thought it would be a good time to visit them and the Mile High City. And she offered me a place to crash when I got there, so why not? I didn't have a car, so I was looking into travel arrangements, and I found a good deal on an overnight train ticket. I could catch the train in Reno, and it would take me all the way to Denver in about 17 hours. I had never taken a train ride, and it sounded so fun. And within a couple of days, I'd closed out my affairs, bought a one-way ticket, and boarded the train headed into the Rocky Mountains. The train was so cool. There was a rider car with rows of plush seats where you could just sit and watch the world chug on by outside the large windows. There was a meal car where you could order a proper meal and a car with a full bar and a quick meal coffee shop type setup as well. The train would roll along to the next station. People would get off and on and then the train would give a whistle, lurch forward and get on down the track. There were there were not a lot of people on the train, so it was easy to find a spot to just chill. So I got comfy and listened to my cassette tapes on my Walkman and let myself sink into the experience. I watched the scenery change from the ultra-bright salt flats of eastern Nevada to the lush, high uh, Unitah Mountains of eastern Utah. We left Grand Junction, Colorado, just as the sun started to drop below the horizon behind us. I was a little bummed that I'd not be able to see the trek through the winding Rockies, as this leg of the trip would happen at night, but I figured I'd be in Colorado for a while, so I'd have time to see the scenery. I had a nice meal, and then went to find the bunk I'd reserved for the night. The sleep car, as it was called, was towards the back of the train. It consisted of upper and lower rows of single sleeper compartments, each with a padded mattress, a blanket, and a pillow, a light you could turn off and on, and a locker for your personal items. Each sleeper car had a thick curtain that you could pull around you for privacy. When I entered the car, there was a train attendant in the aisle who greeted me. He checked my ticket and then swept his arm around me and said, you are assigned to compartment number nine. There are only a couple of you in here tonight, so feel free to take whichever one you want if it isn't already occupied. All the curtains were pulled open, revealing empty compartments, except for one lower compartment near the front of the car, indicating it was occupied. I select an upper compartment in the center of the car and swung my duffel bag onto the rack. I climbed in, arranged the pillows Mm -hmm. and blankets and settled in for the night. There was an oblong window next to me on my right that looked outside. I laid back and watched the last bits of light fade away into the spectacular Rocky Mountain sunset. Soon, it was super dark outside, and it didn't take long for the motion of the train to lull me into a comfy sleep. I awoke sometime later to the sound of screaming. I sat up and pulled the curtain aside, looking forward in the car for where the sound and commotion was coming from. I could see the one other occupied compartment and the curtain jostled and flustered with signs of someone struggling by accompanied shrieks. Before I could do anything, a man rolled out of the compartment onto the floor, tangled in a heap of blanket. He rolled onto his butt with his back pressed against the other side of the aisle and just sat there breathing heavily, staring at the closed curtain of his compartment. I climbed out of my bunk, meaning to help him, but just as I got to the floor, two train attendants entered the front of the car, the attendant who was in the car earlier and a younger attendant following him. Sir, sir, said the older man. My goodness, are you all right? Before the attendant could move to help the man, he lurched forward and jerked the curtain of his compartment wide open and he stared in slack-jawed disbelief. He reached frantically into the compartment and grabbed a pair of eyeglasses, fitted them on his face, and then continued to stare. Sir, the older attendant said. uh, There was somebody, the man said, pointing towards his bed. There was somebody in there with me. Uh. He started looking nervously around the car. 
all three of them looked over towards me standing in the aisle. I dumbly looked behind me and back at them with my palms up and shook my head. No, nobody else. The older attendant put on a smile and helped the man to his feet. Sir, <laughs> you're likely having a bad dream. These old trains can really lull you into a deep sleep. He paused in an odd way, though. Sometimes the sleep is too deep. The frightened passenger mm. had had enough and quickly gathered his belongings from the sleeping compartment, put on his shoes, and made for the front of the train with the two attendants following and trying to cheer him up. I checked my watch. It was about a quarter after midnight, and we still had quite a ways to go. I briefly considered going back up front so I would not be alone in this car when I heard something stir behind me. What's going on? <laughs> Everything all right? I heard a voice with a southern accent. I looked back and down to see the curtain drawn on the lower compartment, one row back and across the aisle from my bunk. There was a gap in the curtain that allowed me to just see the rise of a blanket inside, indicating that someone was lying in there. There was a shift of movement, but the occupant did not open the curtain. Another passenger must have come in while I was asleep. Eh, some old guy had a nightmare, I said. Freaked him out pretty good. Mm, mm-hmm, was the only reply I got back. A moment later, I heard a faint snore indicating the guy had gone back to sleep. I felt a little better knowing I wasn't the only person in the car, so I climbed back in my rack, closed my curtain, and laid back down. And again, it didn't take long for the rolling train to rock me back to sleep. I was jolted awake again with the impact of a loud thump near my head. I felt it near enough to make me flinch out of my sleep. The hell? I thought. It was pitch black outside and the window was very dimly lit in my compartment from the lowered lights in the aisle. I waited quietly, thinking it was just the sound of the train rolling along the tracks, when suddenly it happened again. A loud smack on the window right next to my head. I reached up and turned on the small light and got up on my elbows. There was a light frost on the outside of the window, but beyond that, pitch black. Boom! I heard it again, right in front of me, and I lurched backwards away from the window. Did I just see a handprint in the frost on the outside of the window? I leaned back to get a better look when a succession of blows assaulted the window on the outside. It sounded like an open palm smacking the glass hard, and yes, there were now clearly handprints in the frost on the outside of the window. Three of them, clear at first, but fading fast in the cold wind outside. I sat straight in my bunk in complete disbelief, and then a single movement in the far left of my peripheral vision caught my attention. I looked at the foot of my bed, and there, peering in at the far edge of the curtain, was the face of a young woman. Her face and lips were pale, and she had stringy blonde hair and piercing green eyes. Grim is the only way I could describe the look she gave me. We locked eyes for a second before her mouth opened impossibly oh wide and she screamed at the top of her lungs, STOP! She screamed for about 10 seconds, but it felt like forever. I covered my ears, pushed my back into the wall of the compartment behind me, and then she suddenly stopped screaming and just held my gaze for a few tense heartbeats with that same grim look. Her eyes blazed as she faded backwards into the curtain and flopped back in place. I sat there completely stunned. What the fuck? I mouthed to myself. A second later, I was angry that this kid had screamed at me. She must have thought I was making the banging noise. Angrily, I flung the cur curtain open, glared into the aisle, back and front, intent on giving this kid a piece of my mind. The car was completely empty. No way, I thought to myself. She could not have left the car that quickly. I jumped down from the bunk and checked the compartment beneath mine. Nothing. I stalked angrily back and forth, looking to see if she was hiding in any of the other compartments. But they were all quiet and empty. I knocked on the compartment with the snoring passenger. Hey, man, did you just hear that? I asked loudly. No answer. I knocked again more loudly. Hey, 
Wake up. Did you just hear that girl scream at me? A noise came from the front of the car, and I turned to see the younger attendant from earlier walk in looking confused. Everything okay in here? He asked. No, I blurted out. There was a banging, like really loud. I pointed at, <laughs> I pointed like an idiot at the window. And then, and then a girl was in here, and she screamed at me. Did you see her go that way? The guy looked confused. A girl? <laughs> he asked, looking around. I didn't see anybody else in here, and the only banging I heard was you. He pointed at the compartment I'd been knocking on. Yeah, but this guy heard it too. I said, determined to prove I was not crazy. And I knocked again. Hey, I bellowed. There was a girl in here screaming, right? No answer. I angrily pounded once more, then pulled the curtain back. The compartment was completely empty. Uh. The pillow and blanket neatly folded up, just like all the others that were not in use. I was dumbfounded. Where did he go? I asked, pointing into the empty compartment. Who? The attendant said. There's nobody else in here. The other guy that was sleeping in here, I answered. He must have gotten up and left. Dude, the attendant said, getting real with me and approached me with a few steps. There's no one else back here. There were only two of you in this car tonight. The nightmare guy that left and mm-hmm. he went back up front earlier. You've been back here by yourself ever since. Mind blown. At first, I wanted to argue that he was saying what he was saying was impossible. But the only thing I knew for certain at this point was that I did not want to stay in that car any longer. I gathered my stuff, moved to the front for the remainder of the trip. I met up with Nightmare Guy, and we shared our experiences (laughs) from that night in the sleeper car. After a bit, we had a group of a dozen passengers chatting about paranormal and sharing their stories. At one point, the older trained attendant happened to come by and was listening to our conversations with an amused smile on his face. When I finished telling my story, I said, this train is fucking haunted. He jumped in there with a sly grin and he said, it's not the train, son. It's the pass. As he gestured toward the window, indicating that whatever it was, was outside. And then he walked away, leaving us all to wonder just how much he actually knew. This experience made me a believer for sure. 30 years later, I still remember it all vividly and I still have questions. What was with the sleeping guy? Was he somebody who snuck in for a nap? Or was he never Mm. really there at all? What was in that pass? And how often did it get on board the train? And who was the girl? For a while, I tried to come up with rational explanations for what happened. But then I remembered those green eyes in the dark. And I just have to accept the fact that I had a paranormal experience on that train. Yay, yay, yay. It's a great story. That is. That is. Super well written, like very detailed. Yeah. I can picture it. I can immerse myself in it. I, I like that uh, last detail about the conductor. Me too. Me too. So like, you know, if, uh, yeah, like like that conductor's, you know, was saying is true, then clearly like that multiple trains, various trains have experienced some kind of haunting in that specific spot as they travel through it. Yeah. Like through this pass. Yeah. And I thought like, what a like, new wild cool and interesting <laughs> concept though that like can these spirits like be on the outside can they be on the inside how do they get in the train like, yes yeah snap back and forth because when, when he started to talk about just the girl uh seeing the girl on the outside of the train uh-huh. right before that when there was like the pounding like the handprints and stuff yeah. i had this thought for a second i'm like man what if it was just a really really dedicated prankster <laughs> who just thought it was funny you know even though it's so dangerous and sure freezing yeah and going so fast like you're- and, oh yeah totally it's, it's insane but just to, like crawl around on the on top of this car as it's zipping across a pass just to slam on people's windows and that would be pretty great <laughs> it would be scare pretty the hell great. out of them it'd be pretty great if like the people <laughs> the attendants so, so who worked on the train yeah. had some sort of um like mechanical mechanism that they controlled with a remote that would right. just like give the illusion of that mm-hmm 
But okay, but in paranormal terms, yeah. I did think back, we just talked about this again not long ago about uh, like this like tunnel or whatever, like in Colorado, actually, now that I think about it, and like you drive your car into the tunnel and you turn your lights off and supposedly oh, yeah, something's supposed to yeah, happen. Recently, yeah. And there were like handprints yeah, all yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, where's that in relationship to this? And like, I don't know, was there a, a train crash at some point? And right. Yeah. And it sounds like at least two entities, the, the, whoever was, whatever was in that other bunk, yeah. that little sleeping compartment, and then the girl. Yeah. And then who knows what nightmare guy saw. Oh my God. I know. I know. Yeah. And you've been on tour buses before that have like. Mm, the sleepers. The sleepers. And I've been on an overnight train long time ago where really? I slept on those. But mine was weird. This was like a long time ago. It was Eurorail in like 1997. God, you're old. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. And, uh, <laughs> and I thought it was so at the time it was like so creepy where it was like you would get, it was a very cheap pass that I had some kind of like student pass, but, but it was non-students too. It's, I don't know. Whatever. And it was, uh, you'd have a room and there would be bunk beds on each side if I'm remembering correctly. So there'd be like four people in a little compartment, but you weren't sealed in. You were just out in the open with the other people. So you'd go up into your bed, but there could be a co total stranger below you or vice versa. With no curtain. No, uh, no, I don't remember a curtain or anything. Cause I remember oh. there was a couple and just, it was me on one side and then just a man and woman like also like in there. smashed into that tiny space. Yeah. And we each had our own bed, but we were just so close to each other. It kind of reminded me of like a college dorm where you have bunk yeah, beds, but it's yeah. like, but in this case, I have no idea who these people are and they spoke a different language and everything. I'm like, this is uncomfortable, but I've been in the, what sounds like what he was saying on a tour bus where you have a little curtain or some kind of enclosure and it mm -hmm. is cool. You have your own little private space. It is really cool. Somewhere in my phone, I yeah, have, you've done that too. Yeah. I was thinking about it. I wanted to look it up before the story just to kind of cement it in my brain, but in 2011, mm -hmm. yeah, in 2011, when I was out on tour with a musician, uh, we had, you know, you have like various tour buses because she had a whole crew, right? Like the yeah. lighting crew, blah, blah. So you'd get on your bus and it was a double-decker bus. Like downstairs, you have like a kitchen, a bathroom, and then you'd go upstairs and then you, so it was like, that was sort of like the front lower half. And then you'd go, like, it's kind of like in the middle. You'd go up these steps and you'd go in the back. And so you either had beds in the top yeah. half or the bottom half. So you go up these stairs and it was one, two, it depended on what country we were in. You'd either have like two or three bunks. Mm. And I would think about these men that were like six, four, six, five. <laughs> Crammed um, in there. This guy, Bruce, I will never forget. I'm like, how the fuck do you fit in that thing? But he always took the bottom. Uh. But it, it is a strange thing because there's like this little ladder mm -hmm. and you like go up and you either get in the middle or the top. I always wanted the top. I was petrified of being in the bottom because I thought it's going to crash down. I'm going to die. I'm going to be smothered to death. But all the fear aside, it's so cool because yeah. you do have this little window, you have a little light, you have a little compartment. You like we were on tour, so we were all together That's for so crazy. long. They, you had double decker. I've never heard of like a double decker tour bus. It was That's, the coolest thing. That is cool. I've never been on one of those. I mean, she has all yeah, this the was, money. This was like Rihanna, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I the one I did when I was like with like Larry the Cable Guy and then Regan. Oh yeah, yeah, Brian too. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I remember like there was no little ladder, and it was like it was a bitch to get in the top bunk. Oh. And so I would, I was younger and stuff. I remember like kinda the like... tour manager would take the bottom, <laughs> and I would have to do like some kind of gymnastics move to kind of like get in and then out of that thing. You'd have to really kind of balance yourself, swing across. <laughs> it was yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. I loved bus days because it was like um, because you were with this giant production. Yeah. She had her own catering crew that went with us. I mean, it's such a wild thing to think about all that goes into a tour of that magnitude. Yeah. I mean, she was on tour, 
I was out with them for nine months and they'd already been out for several months. So you have a huge, huge staff and yeah, so, huge much, so many staff. logistical things to consider. But it's so cool because like, just like a little, I'll, I'll keep this brief, but it's just really, really awesome. They, at least on this tour, they would like say like, okay, like when you get to the bus, what do you want your bus meal to me tonight? So then like they would like make uh, you know, sandwiches or like, you know, would have like a, a small menu to choose from. Sometimes if you got lucky, they would make you some very special banana bread. Ah, funny. And, you know, so you would like get on the bus, you'd have like, you know, your, your meal or you would like kind of like um, squirrel away a bunch of food yeah. and then climb up in your bunk and like watch a TV show on your iPad or like yeah. read a book. And it was this like moving sort of apartment with, but you were with the same 12 people. Huh. You know, 20 people every night yeah. on this bus. That was wild. Didn't you guys, <laughs> didn't you, didn't, I keep wanting to fill in cool and interesting whenever you say I know. Uh, didn't you guys go through Italy on that tour too on a bus? We did. We did. But the best thing that we did, like my favorite yeah. moment on that bus. So we had been in Brazil mm. and we went to Rio and we saw Giant Jesus. Oh yeah. And, Portugal and Brazil. Yes. Yeah. And so then we were driving through Portugal where we were like on our way to Portugal yeah. and not from Brazil, obviously. You drove, yeah, no, yeah. I get it. You drove the bus from Brazil to Portugal. <laughs> cool bus. Uh, I think we had like just come from- You're on the magic school bus. We, I think we had just come from Scotland and you like take a ferry. We got, yeah. whatever. It was this whole crazy travel day, like two days. And uh, I was on tour with one of my dear friends and she like, she's like, Lindsay, Lindsay. Look out the window. And because of where her her and I had the top bunks, and I looked out the top window yeah. and I saw the other Jesus. Oh yeah, yeah. It's crazy, it was yeah. just like the best moment. I'm like, it's Jesus. And then <laughs> I went back. back, then I went back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope we get to go through Italy again just because I, I do want to work now that I'm fluent in Italian. That's why I was kind of bringing that up. I was just oh. so I could I could translate for us now. I've never actually spent time mm. in Italy. We just drove through Rome on our way to yeah. like France or something. Mm, I could I could handle all of our dining and stuff. Okay, can just like very quickly. Yeah. By the way, you guys can just like. Uh, she's a, she's a one on a spaghetti and a pomodoro. Eh, we got a total Lamborghini, Antonio Banderas. Eh, we needed to find it in the bathroom in the Linguini Primavera, uh, Gucci Bottega. Yeah, like that. I, I I'll translate what I just said. Um, we would like uh, a pepperoni pizza and use of your bathroom. <laughs> That, that was a lot of words just for that. Yeah, it's a crazy language. I got excited because I thought you just got me a Chanel bag and a Bottega Veneta bag. Nope. Oh. Just bathroom and pizza. All right. Mm -hmm. I don't even like pizza. That's how you ask. If you want to ask how to go to the bathroom, where's the bathroom in Italy, you say, uh, a pizza pie of Maserati Antonio Banderas. And then they'll show you the bathroom. That's beautiful. Thank you. You're so talented. Yeah, yeah. I'm Honestly, I'm jealous. Thank you. Thank Maybe you. you can teach me in your master class. Yeah, you can take it. Sign up for the master class. Um, do you want to do some Annabelle's? <laughs> I love you, you nut. <laughs> yes, I would love to do some Annabelle's. Thank you to the following Annabelle's for helping us to donate to the Museum of Tolerance this month. Amanda Gamble, Jody Houghton, Jamie Vaughan, Caitlin Davis, Ellie Buryuk, Heidi Lotzenhauser. What a great name, Heidi Lotzenhauser. <laughs> Moss Frog. Heather Leaderly, Bridget M, Ronnie, Mitchell Cross, Jacqueline, 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 Connor Kidd, Ariona Morrison, Holly Ackley, so spooky, like so, I so <laughs> oh, yeah, think, yeah. that's adorable, and Lance Bowman. I would like to thank the following Annabellas, it's a Patricia Young, uh, Shannon O'Connor, Lamborghini, Mick Kinley, Cor Coran Bugatti, 
Andy Steele, Tony Soprano. Julius Fry. Okay, I'll stop. Julius Fry. Oh, actually, I'll tell your name. Katie. Katie Casale. Uh, Brenda Orozco. Mad Messer and Moms. Heather Helzer. Carissa LaJoy. Cashel Cayula. Um, Selene Rojas. Liam Whelan. Logan and Ashley Ruggles. Cute. That's cute. Uh, Zach Chu. Cody. Deborah Anderson. Zach Chu's Cody. Zach Chu's Cody. <laughs> Zach Chu one, Annabelle. Cody another. Deborah Anderson, Psycho Bunny. Sorry, those are two. Deborah Anderson one, Psycho Bunny. Lacey Fraunfelter, Mythical Meerkat. Awesome. This is a great series of names. Yeah. I wish you would have done them all in Italian. What are you like to do with a spoopy shout uh, We could do, uh, I knew it was you, Michael. Uh, <laughs> Fredo. I knew it was you, Fredo. I'm trying to think of some more words. Uh, Noki. Okay. <laughs> okay. I think that you should work on it and save it for a bonus episode. This okay. is getting like a all little right. too. I'll stop. I'll stop. A, a little too funny for a regular episode. I'm just I, stop. <laughs> to Jake from MJ, aka Sugar Bear. Happy 27th birthday, baby daddy. You're inching closer to 30. Just a reminder. To Grant from Tanner, happy birthday, and to Molly from Tim, happy anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary. How do you say it? Happy anniversary. Uh, <laughs> Fucelli Pavarotti. Yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah. Uh, now I'm thinking of how annoyed you were when I started to do this. We went to, with the kids, we went to an Italian restaurant, Angelo's. Literally, this man is from Italy. Right. Yeah, we, I know. I just thought he'd be flattered to know that some of his patrons <laughs> speak Italian. But I walked in and I was in the back just being like, let's go to a seat. Side. We'll have a nice pizza pie. And you were like, stop. Well, Monroe then, is also getting to a point yeah, where she, she's embarrassed. She, yes, because you have a series of these things that you do. Mm-hmm. We go to Boston and there's Jimmy Anderson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jimmy Anderson, I take a bath to the bean in South Bay. Yeah. <laughs> and then now there's uh-huh. there was that. And then there was something after that before the Italian. I don't know. Oh God! But I, but I, you can't be trusted. <laughs> I remember so Kyler and I, you guys were walking forward, and we were just whispering in the back, like, "What's the problem with the ladies? They're so annoyed with us." <laughs> Kyler's girlfriend was there as well. She was, I mean, for a minute she thought it was funny, like when we were outside, and then because you walk in and it's mm-hmm. this tiny little foyer, the cook, the Italian man can see you. Yeah. It's just disrespectful. I know I want to disrespect the mafia. Uh, okay. I hope the mafia hurts you. <laughs> so that's our show. I do so many stereotypes. Uh, that's our show. Thanks for continuing to send in your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. You can email us for everything else. Info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Thanks to Logan Keith, Tyler C. for the work on social media. Logan again for running badmagicmerch.com. Thanks to Tyler for producing and directing today. We could do snaps. snaps. We do fake snaps. Zach Cohen. No, for, no one okay. wants to hear it. Zach Cohen for custom soundbed creation. Heather Rylander for organizing the My Story emails. Book editor Drew Atana for polishing and preparing listener stories for book number four. Thank you to producer Sarah Finch for finding the first story I told this week. And to Olivia Lee for finding the second Subscribe to Bad Magic Productions on YouTube if you'd like to watch the show. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram if you want more content and to see the pictures with each episode at Scared to Death Podcast. We have a private Facebook group, Creeps and Peepers, with thousands of horror-loving members for you to befriend. And you can follow us on TikTok as well, also at Scared to Death Podcast. And if you don't want ads and do want monthly bonus episodes, check out our Patreon. Get the entire catalog ad-free and more. And for the 2023 Wet Hot Bad Magic Summer Camp tickets, go to badmagicmerch.com. Check the banner at the top of the page for tickets. And enjoy your nightmares, creeps and peepers. I hope you were scared to death. Pray for me. If spirits threaten me in this place, 
Fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through but have no home here within scared to death. Productions. I love. I love them. how you become a sock model randomly on this show. <gasps> Should I have a sock only? Only fans? Oh boy, uh, there, there probably is uh, a demand for that. Listen, sure. travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay.